Hey, hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? This is T. Trevor. Find me on Twitter at Ricky Rawls. Um, but also go to the group account at Champagne Sharks. One word, no underscore. That's where we use Twitter together. That's the group account run by all of us. Also, you can email us at champagnesharks at gmail.com. This is one of those question and answer episodes. So, uh, you know how it goes. I either go on Curious Cat or I go on in the Champagne Sharks Gmail account or go to Twitter DMs or whatever. But basically, we just compile a bunch of questions that people have all over the place and try to answer as many as we can in one shot. So without further ado, uh, here's one that actually has come to me in various forms. Uh, It's come to me in emails, it's come to me in queries, cat. So I'll give like two examples of the question. And I answered it once on the curious cat, but I thought it was worth answering on air since it keeps coming back. There was a, there was a, thing I did on early in the show's run where I discussed the problem with um, integration as a primary or only um, racism solution. And what I was saying was that integration without dismantling white supremacy just or anti-blackness, because they're two different things, white supremacy and anti-blackness aren't always um, the same thing. What I mean by that is um, you could not be white and therefore not actually be practicing white supremacy, but still be um, anti-black. And the anti-blackness that a lot of non-whites practice is one of the main ways you either earn whiteness or at the very least earn model minority status. And one thing I've been doing is that I think I've been saying white supremacy too often and sometimes the right term is anti-blackness a lot of times you've put a venn diagram there's a whole lot of overlap but sometimes they're not always um the same thing and that's something that in the future i'm going to be trying to be a little more cognizant of you know about not always using white supremacy to describe everything because it's a little more uh nuanced than that and Reading and listening to uh, Frank Wilderson has uh, helped crystallize a lot of that for me. Someone I hope to get on the show eventually, but uh, we'll see. But anyway, the integration question, what I was trying to get across is if it's like when uh, Martin Luther King had that um, quote, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it up, but he had a quote saying, um, all these, all this time I've been chasing integration and I fear I may have been integrating my people into a burning house. Uh, meaning that, you know, it's not a good place for black people to be until you put the fire out, you know? And yeah, it's like if somebody is abusing and beating me, sometimes I might be better off not being in the house and taking care of that abuse Like, just putting me in the house with that abusive person just means that you have more access and opportunity to abuse me. And what it's going to do to my mindset is not necessarily going to be great, not to mention my physical well-being. So, anyway, people responded with certain things like this. Like, this is one uh, email I got. said, I was listening to the to the episode about integration and wondering why you didn't examine the opinion that integration allows minority students access to white resources and school funding. The money follows white people around, or so the saying goes. I know this thinking doesn't challenge capitalism or the unfair way schools are funded, but isn't it relevant? In a perfect world, we redistribute wealth to fund all public schools properly. But in the meantime, is this thinking viable? I know it is still tied up in the social overvaluation of whiteness, but I was surprised you didn't mention the funding angle. It also doesn't fix the problematic bottom-up approach to integration put forth by busing or other student-oriented integration methods. Maybe it was implied by your thoughts and I just missed it. Let me know what you think. 
Now, I didn't re-listen to the episode, but I thought I did mention, maybe I didn't, or maybe I thought it was implied and I should have made it more explicit. Maybe I didn't make it explicit, but I, I do understand the funding thing. I understand that funds follow white people, that uh, you have to be around white people to get access to good things. Resources follow white people. When white people leave places, that's how a lot of urban blight happened. When there was a white flight to the suburbs, a lot of um, services and uh, things that were supposed to go to the community just disappeared and went with them. And, you know, people stopped giving a fuck about helping certain neighborhoods once there weren't white people in them anymore. Funding dried up. I get all that. And it wouldn't even be so bad if people mentioned what this writer says as a stopgap, you know, as saying, hey, we have to get these kids around the white resources while we work to redistribute and, you know, get resources back into these black areas, get these things working again, get things fair make sure that um there is no difference in the quality of education of a black area and a white area but it's not treated like that by both white and black liberal anti-racist or i should say anti-racist altogether um because i don't think conservatives are notably different in this idea that things don't need redistribution but it seems to be like integration is the main and only avenue pursued. And that, I think, is the problem. So it's like, in addition to the worry about needing to get rid of white supremacy or anti-blackness before uh, integration can be a real solution, a real lasting solution, um, even when the idea of it as a temporary solution doesn't work because there's still no talk about the bigger picture of when are they going to kind of fix the unequal distribution of funds, the unequal distribution of resources, and why is there an unequal distribution of resources? Because of white supremacy and anti-blackness. You see, you see what I'm saying? It still ends up, it still ends up becoming the same thing at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's not going to solve the problem without getting rid of white supremacy, anti-blackness, that redistribution, that eventual making of things fair. But not just that, with white supremacy, anti-blackness in the mix, it never even gets tabled. Nobody even talks about it because it's considered the natural order of things. Like It's just treated as normal that white people have the resources. That's the default normative state of how things work in America. And that's just how it works. And people don't even question it. You can see long, long discussions about integration. And you'll see like a lot of these black liberal writers and thinkers writing pieces about, hey, white people, this is why integration not only helps black kids, but helps you. You know, uh, it helps your kids when they're around diversity. And, and everything is just about this idea that you have to get these kids around the magical proximity of whiteness, like the magical effect of white proximity. And that's something we talk about in the show a lot. Like white proximity is kind of held up as a magic talisman. You know, if you just around white people, you'll absorb all this stuff. And I think we've shown dozens, hundreds of times already on this show. Like when you look at these blavity blacks and how mixed up they are about their place in the world, about, relationship to blackness about their love-hate relationship to white validation i mean this time this type of um neurosis comes from being up under white people in a system of white supremacy like a lot of times and i think france fanon says this he says no matter how well adjusted a black child is um from within his black family or his black community there is always going to be a certain amount of neurosis introduced into his self-image once you put him in regular contact with white people in a system of white supremacy. So it's like, that's something that I think can't be ignored. And when you have all these stories about um, 
how all these people just get kind of screwed up by it. Uh, their self-image, their self-hate, their... I mean, Franz Fanon, E. Franklin Frazier. I mean, a lot of people have written about the psych- psychological effect of what you end up internalizing by being around people who hold you um, in contempt or even if it's like benign contempt that you can call paternalism or hateful contempt, you know, that you call terrorism, it's still a type of contempt that you can't help but um, internalize to a degree. And it's also the type of invisibility you suffer from. Uh, we, We talked about invisibility in the past, and I always talk about how Black people really suffer with invisibility. There's this idea, and it's, it infects our entertainment, our politics, this whole representation thing. We value being visible over everything. We talk about this in the Pansexual Lando episode, which I think is a very good one. If you're listening to this for free, if there's any episode that gets you to become a patron, I would say it's that one. I'm particularly proud of that one. But we uh, suffer with ideas of invisibility, and invisibility is tough. Because what makes invisibility tough to get over is that black people, even when they're seen, they're invisible. That's the conundrum. That's the paradox. And what I mean by that is a lot of times in, not among other black people, but when we're in white environments, we feel like we're invisible. But when we do ostensibly get seen, we're still invisible because what's being seen is not us. It's usually a false self. It's a, it's a caricature, it's a stereotype. So it's like white people will ignore you or not see you or relegate you to the background until you either scare them, in which case they're not seeing you. They're seeing a boogeyman. They're seeing a caricature. And they can't see past the caricature to see you. Or when it's time for like sexual slumming or sexual sewering or sexual experimentation, then they see you again. You know, entertainment, they see you. But in both those cases, they're not seeing you. They're seeing a trope, a stereotype. Um, You know, see you as a criminal, see you as, as, as a magical advisor uh you know a magical negro i mean even when you're seen you're not seen you're they're seeing a hallucination so um i think being raised in that you start seeing yourself as invisible it's a very very screwed up thing that i think a lot of black people who are used to black spaces don't really suffer from as much and i I think um, that's kind of where I stand on that. I'm going to put another uh, example of this question being asked to me, and then I'm going to read the answer I gave uh, to that person. So in that case, what I had, what I had said is, somebody wrote me, Hi, I just listened to your episode on integration. I thought it was a bit unfair to the best arguments for integration. For example, Elizabeth Anderson argues that integration is necessary for blacks to have access to the social and material goods they have so long been denied. Do you think that white supremacy could be dismantled without some degree of integration? So that's two questions. And the first thing I'll say is you have to ask the fact that she just says and you just accept that integration is necessary for blacks to have access to the social and material goods they have so long been denied that alone is a problem like that the the fact that people can say that so casually as hey you know what about the fact that they need to be around whites to get good things that shows the degree to which we passively casually accept white supremacy as the normal default state of things how things should be like just the state that the world defaults to and I think if it is necessary for blacks to be around white people to get access to the social material goods, that is a cosmic injustice that should be prioritized over. Like if one house in the town has all the good stuff, has all the good resources, is hoarding everything, then 
is my first priority finding a way to get invited into that house? Um, think about it, that was your family and another family had all that good stuff. And they got it through pillaging, plundering, domination, terrorism, and reneging on treaties and all types of bargains with the rest of the community, you know? And now they're saying, hey, we want to do right. Everybody come to our house and share some of the stuff that we um, plundered. And, you know, what would you say to that? Would your answer be, hey, you know, you got to admit, we have to be at their house to get that shit. Or would you be like, Fuck no, get share your shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I think like black people naturally internalize this as a normal state of things too. That's why we always talk about white privilege in academia, but not white supremacy. And what is the difference between privilege and supremacy? Like supremacy is power. And the difference between privilege and power is privilege is perks, and power is the ability to give out and revoke perks. So when you have power, you can control who gets and doesn't get privileges. Whereas with privileges, you're just always at the mercy of people with the power. And a lot of our most notable black anti-racists, they won't really talk about white supremacy and systemic stuff, but they will talk about white privilege all day in which they're saying, look, we trust you guys in charge more than we trust ourselves in charge and more than we trust really splitting things in power you know i mean we're just happy with some figureheads like obama whatever we just want you to make sure you're sharing you know some of the perks with us we just want perks we don't want power because we're happy the way it is as long as we're getting perks you can keep the power and it's like you know hey you you own the house uh you're my brother you own the house the even though we're both uh, living in this house, our parents have chosen to only have you uh, on the deed. But, you know, as long as you let me use the bathroom uh, equally and, you know, have equal access to TV time or whatever, as long as I'm getting the same perks, I don't care that you're the one who's actually going to inherit the house and I'm not getting shit. Just let me just keep using the house like normal and just pretend that we're both um, equal within the house, even though I'm actually... Uh, shut out and I'm living on your whims and desires, you know? And then the other idea is, do you think white supremacy can be dismantled without some degree of integration? I think it's irrelevant. I don't think it matters. I think if white supremacy exists, it can exist with integration. It could exist without integration. I think if white supremacy was to disappear, you can have no white supremacy separately or together. It's just about mistreatment and neglect and domination and appropriation of resources and psychological and physical terrorism. And if anything, I think white supremacy can be carried out in some ways better in an integrated society. Because you can really, really work a number on a victim that you live with as opposed to a victim that's a part, you know. And you can really terrorize somebody that you're apart from, too, if you really want to. Because in Jim Crow times, when they were separate, they could still terrorize us, too. I, I think it's an irrelevant thing. I think that white supremacy can be dismantled with or without integration. But I don't think integration can work without dismantling white supremacy, anti-blackness. So the actual answer I'd given at the time, I'll just reread the answer in its entirety. I guess my question to that would be, why is the integration necessary for the black person, for the black people to get those social and material goods. Why do we accept the premise that a space is only worthy of having those things if it has white people in it? Why can't a black only space receive those same social and material goods, regardless of if there are white people in that space? Also, I think you are asking the wrong question. To me, the question isn't whether white supremacy can be dismantled without integration. The question is whether integration can be achieved and maintained without dismantling white supremacy. Look how long we keep chasing integration first as a solution and how white suprem and hoping white supremacy crumbles and it doesn't happen. If anything, white supremacy allows segregation to keep reasserting itself. Black people moved up north and white flight happened to the suburbs and the inner city was deprived of those social and material goods you describe as being available through integration. 
Black people then chase white people to the suburbs into their schools and neighborhoods. And now we have those suburbs going down the tubes as white people escape back into the cities via gentrification, displacing black people who are poor in droves. Now Brooklyn is unofficially becoming segregated. Segregation is a symptom of white supremacy, not vice versa. Segregation will always reassert itself as long as white supremacy is intact. It's like saying suppressing a cough through endless cough drops and cough medicine will eliminate a flu. And yeah, that's pretty much uh, how I feel about that. So I think that hopefully, hopefully I think that answers uh, that question once and for all will clarify that episode once and for all because I've gotten, like I said, various um, reiterations of that question. Um, let's see. Somebody asked about white supremacy and apartheid. Uh, we already had that episode with Wendy Muse. What's good? What's good? Hold on. Okay, here we go. So somebody asked... Here is a short video against integration that you might like. And somebody added this video that um, I think is pretty interesting. So I will put that video in now. It's by a British Muslim activist named Ash Sakar. And she responds to some comments made by somebody about segregation in the United Kingdom and explains why integration is a flawed and oppressive approach to understanding race. And this is coincidental, but it works out well because it ends up being about the same thing that I just answered. Hello, welcome to this new edition of OMFG Sarka. I'm your host, Ash Sarka, and today I want to talk about integration. This week, Professor Ted Cantle, who carried out a report into the riots in 2001 in Oldham and Bradford, said that Britain is becoming more divided along ethnic lines. In an interview with The Guardian, he said, There is more mixing in some parts of our society, but there is undoubtedly more segregation in residential areas, more segregation in schools, and more segregation in workplaces. That is driving more prejudice, intolerance, and mistrust in communities. So, let's get into this. Cantor's language is incredibly euphemistic. He doesn't explicitly state what he means by mixing or segregation, or even which communities and parts of society he's referring to. But it becomes a bit more clear later in the interview, when he points out that the number of electoral wards with a majority non-white population has increased from 119 in 2001 to 429 today. Similarly, he points out that in London, the white British population has decreased by 600,000, while the minority population has increased by 1.2 million. So yes, lads, we're winning. His language isn't merely vague, it's coded. So we're not talking about ethnicity, we're talking about race, white people and everyone else. Brown people live in communities, white people live in society, and Cantle just isn't interested in how different people of colour interact with one another. Whiteness is what matters. And this is significant. Research by Dr Gemma Catney indicates that across England and Wales, residential segregation for all ethnic groups has decreased, apart from for the white British population. Cantle isn't advocating desegregation, but dispersal. People of colour are only palatable as long as we don't have a strong sense of community or solidarity with one another. And his measures of segregation indicate an anxiety that whiteness being outnumbered is under attack by ever-increasing numbers of people of colour whose very existence is threatening. And what, like ethnic minorities were treated badly in this country or something? People of colour aren't oppressed because of a numbers game. If racism was just an accident of demographics, majority versus minority, apartheid would never have happened in the first place. Framing racism as a matter of prejudice and mutual mistrust between communities means we don't talk about power, who has it, who doesn't, and why that's the case. Keith Woods once described integration as what happens when a monolith is changed, for instance, when a black family moves into a white neighborhood. 
But while it's easy to measure integration by where we work, where we live, where we study, it's much harder to quantify interaction. So a black family might move into a white neighborhood, but that doesn't mean they'll get invited to the barbecue. And what's more, it doesn't mean they'll be safe from racist violence, as the tragic murder of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman attests. He was viewed as a threat in the white majority neighborhood that he lived in. In response to Cantor's comments, Chukaramuna identified civic and state institutions as the means by which to bridge social divides. But it's these very institutions that create these divides in the first place. People of colour are segregated by the prison industrial complex, by immigration detention and deportations, and the economic violence of bad housing, precarious contracts and shit pay. And these conditions cost lives. Integration isn't welcoming us into society. It's demanding that we participate in that which oppresses us and with a glad heart. It's a call for complicity. So integration isn't a raceless paradigm. And this isn't just a problem of conceptual clarity. It's reproducing racist discourses in which people of colour must assimilate into spaces and social relations which have been deemed civilised by a white supremacist state. Integration doesn't address injustice, and if that's not antisocial, I don't know what is. The goal shouldn't be to integrate into an unjust society. The goal should be to transform it. Yeah, so I think that's a good example of somebody getting what I was trying to get at in that first uh, episode. The person who sent me that clip, I think they, they got what I was trying to say, thankfully. So, yeah, okay, what else? Um, have you seen the TV show Person of Interest? No, I have no idea. If it's a good show, the person didn't tell me um, anything more about it. Let's see what else. I wonder if you could get Colin Kaepernick on the show. Probably not, but maybe. He's probably got some free time right now. Dude, your guess is as good as mine. I have no idea how to get Colin Kaepernick on the show. I mean, I would love to have him on too, but I think he, I think we're a little below his radar. I mean, stranger things have happened, so who knows? Um, somebody sent this comment, and I thought it was pretty good. And... Um, it's not really a question. It's just something that I think is worth reading. Someone said, loved your appearance on Street Fight and hope they have you on soon. I've listened to them off, on and off, mostly talking to people I follow and finally became a patron after listening to your appearance. Uh, good person. Anyways, I found your discussion on the Huff Poe piece on the murders of the four black lesbians very spot on. Just to expand further... I live in Minnesota with my girlfriend who was raised in California and attended college there. I'm the daughter of East African immigrants and she's a black American. She was in college during the 2008 presidential election and like so many her age was excited about Obama. She did some volunteering for him, but not much. She tended to work mostly with the LGTBQ community centers to assist those with basic services. As you know, it was also the year of Prop 8. What struck me about the conversation you had with Street Fight guys was that it reminded me of what you told me after Clinton's 2016 election loss and how it was so similar to how the major organizers dealt with it. The organizers were overwhelmingly older, white, upper-middle-class, assimilationist gays. They made no attempt to contact working-class and non-white LGBTQ organizers, instead reaching out to upper-class white individuals and couples. Their strategy was solely to appeal to white suburban women, and we all know who followed that failed strategy. This KPFA special from 2011 touches on this very well and deserves a listen. And that's the link I'm going to put in the show notes for anybody who wants to um, see it. Anyway, to get back to the root of the HuffPo article is, I think, this. For decades, the mainstream professional managerial class gay organizations and spokespeople have crafted a specific image of gays and lesbians to best appeal to mainstream America, 
fashionable, patriotic, middle class, and especially white, and they ended up succeeding. The holy trinity of the gay professional marriage, um, professional managerial class was marriage, abolishing don't ask, don't tell, and hate crime legislation. Oh, let, me, let me reread that sentence. The holy trinity of gay professional managerial class was one, marriage, two, abolishing don't ask, don't tell, and three, hate crime legislation. With all three goals met, it has left them in a standstill and not much to fundraise on. Marriage being their biggest fundraising tool, according to the KPFA special. I think the reason they jumped on the black lesbian murders, which don't appear to be homophobic hate crimes, seems to be to continue asserting their importance as anti-discriminatory organizations in the era of Black Lives Matter and ICE raids. Because if you notice with Trump and all his bigoted bluster, he doesn't go after lesbian and gay folks as he does with racial, religious, and ethnic minorities, though he does with trans folks, another group historically neglected by the gay professional managerial class, consciously decoupling blacks from the larger image of the mainstream movement had hurt them in an era of shallow points-based oppression Olympics politics, so the framing of disadvantaged black lesbians the gold medalist of these Olympics, as under the banner of targeted homophobic killings, serves them as relevant as well as not racist. So, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I think that's a great point. And that's something that I was trying to tell a lot of black people when it comes to this idea of picking the winning team, which I think a lot of black people jump on. They want to be primarily be black queer or black feminist slash black women because they realize black is a losing team. And I also think that's why a lot of uh, the straight black male bashing comes in, because part of differentiating themselves as a privileged class within in a press class, paradoxically, the privilege coming from extra oppression, you know, under the paradigm of oppression Olympics is to differentiate yourself as much as possible from the other blacks, the poor blacks, the unwashed masses, the straight black men, etc. So, yeah, I think it all kind of ties in that these white queers or these white feminists, because a lot of what she says in here, I think also applies to white feminists. Like, they've made the face of feminism, like, you know, white. And now a lot of these bourgeois white women have gotten a lot of the things that they wanted. And now they kind of have to try to strategically make the face of... uh, bourgeois feminism like black again but superficially black just so that they can um kind of act like they have a real purpose for existing and also to mask their own privilege i think the same thing goes and i feel like a lot of black people and again i think it comes from that invisibility i was talking about again feeling visible even though they're not really seeing you they're not really caring about you there's no real empathy there they're not really seeing you but we're just so happy to get even a fucked up type of, of visibility that we'll take it over total invisibility that a lot of us jump on this and are willing to be their mules. And when they get what they want or do whatever, they're going to throw you back under the bus. And that's something that I really like this comment for talking about. And I'm glad that um, she wrote in. Okay. What else? Um, I saw the Twitter thread you did that mentioned Cola Booth. I don't know if you're up on it, but there is a whole movement revolving around black women who share their feelings, who share her feelings about black men. It's this weird toxic mix of swirling and extremist black feminism. Google, quote, black women divest, end quote, quote, B-W-G-T-O-W, which I'm guessing is black women going their own way, end quote. Quote, Brooklyn Blue, spelled B-R-E-U-K-E-L-E-N, and Blue is spelled B-L-E-U, like uh, blue cheese, end quote. And, quote, leaving Blackistan, end quote. So that's four terms. Black women divest, B-W-T-T-O-W, Brooklyn Blue, and leaving Blackistan, Blackistan, 
if you're not familiar with these folks. And I actually am familiar with these folks. And it's a very interesting thing because it's kind of like, it's that same get with the winning team mentality. It's they feel like it's all about, um, you know, getting with white men, but which is fine if that's what you want to do. I don't think it's, if that's what you want to do. I, what I say is do what makes you happy, follow your bliss, as long as you don't have to throw other black people under the bus to do it. That's something that I try to make clear all the time. I don't care if you swirl. I don't care what, what you do. Just don't throw black people under the bus to do it or co-sign a lot of white supremacist uh, fuckery to do it, which is the problem that these people kind of have. They just can't be comfortable in their choices. They have to somehow make it this kind of political or survivalist thing because so many black men are killing and abusing them. And they also even attack other black women who don't share their views. They can ironically be some of the most hateful people of black women possible if they feel those black women are dating black men and are happy with black men and therefore fucking up their narrative and even worse uh speaking out against them so it's not really even a black woman oriented thing like they pretend that it is they just really want to um they just really want to cozy up to a system of oppression because that's kind of the thing they hold a lot of things against black men, but decontextualize it from the things that put black men in a decidedly worse place in a lot of ways than black women, like the prison industrial complex, um, the jobs, the level of impression, the um, sanctioned police murder, murders of them, like black men are way disproportionately targeted by police for not only imprisonment, but outright execution than black women and you know these people found a place in the system that they can they found a hack they found a way to uh work in the system and find a a little cozy spot for themselves and they are willing to throw black men under the bus to get that spot because it helps them ingratiate themselves to the system you know it's like we're going to do the swirling thing and we're going to ingratiate ourselves to these white men by throwing black men under the bus and in the process of doing so we're helping give cover to the system because by giving an argument that hey we're doing great and white men are doing great, so we should be with them because they treat us better. But black men are doing bad and treat us bad and treating everything like interpersonal, transactional choices done on a level playing field or with equal bargaining power. That analysis, just the fact of engaging in that analysis and ignoring all the systemic reasons why white men might be socialized or in a position to treat their partners better or why there are not that many black men doing as well as black women or white men. You're kind of helping the narrative. This is a fair system and that white people have done all that they can do and that black men just can't hold up their end of the bargain. And yeah, that's something that if you are, a white guy who might be somewhat racist, that can be kind of appealing, you know, it's, um, and they know that. So, yeah, I mean, all those things, if anybody's curious, I feel like I give that crowd a little too much oxygen in general. So I kind of don't want to talk about it too much more either today or after today, but they keep the head, their heads keep popping up and it's hard not to. Um, let's see, da, da, what else? Does Spike Lee have a black constituency? How is he now regarded by yourselves and the black community in general? I don't really know. I mean, he definitely historically has had a black constituency. I don't know to the degree that he is still as relevant in the black community. I don't know. It's, um, I mean, it's kind of weird, this question, because I feel like the question is, 
probably not being asked by a black person. And then it puts me in a position of trying to be like a cultural informant or anthropologist to non-black people by telling them who black people like and don't like. And, and it's like, I mean, I don't really know if I'm qualified to say, because I'm, there are still a lot of black people who are into Spike Lee clearly. Uh, whether he speaks to every class of black person, I don't know, because I mean, there, there's a certain type of blue collar working class church going type of black person that I think doesn't feel spoken to with Spike Lee and loves um, Tyler Perry. And Spike Lee is a big critic of Tyler Perry, you know, I think for that reason. So I think a problem with this question is that it's a little too isolated on race and some, and I think there's a class and race component to Spike Lee's appeal. And there's some type of respectability politics. And I mean, he tries to pretend he's an outsider, but he, still married into that Martha's Vineyard crowd and he still vacations there and he kind of wants to be in that black elite, that black upper middle class, that black upper crust. And yeah, it's I personally not part of, I'm personally not part of that crowd. He he might still have a lot of cultural cachet in that crowd. And yeah, so I think it's uh so first is a question I feel kind of weird about cuz I don't really like uh, assuming the role of explaining black people to non-white people, I mean, to non-black people. And also, I don't think I'm qualified because I just, I think you might have a target audience and I don't think I'm part of it um, anyway. But I still, you know, occasionally enjoy him, except for She Got Game. That was, He Got Game. That was horrible. And and he, um, his new movie looks pretty good. That Black Klansman movie is the first time I've been excited about a Spike Lee movie in a while. Um. This might have been, this is another question. This might have been in the earlier episode, but what is your opinion on Shonda Rhimes, both as a content creator and as a black person who owns a production company and has relative autonomy? Well, one thing I like about Shonda Rhimes is that he's she's a very much like a power player, and I guess that's good, but she seems to be kind of this, she seems to be very much in that striver, hardworking class. She seems the kind of person that. Okay, I feel like um, black men, for a variety of reasons, don't kind of fit in as well in a lot of mainstream society as far as the social climbing goes, unless we're doing sports or something like that. I just feel like we get criminalized or stigmatized or put on maybe um the problematic track like way too earlier because i think when a black boy is kind of rambunctious or outspoken or whatever there's less tolerance for it than when a white boy is the same like i think when a, when a white boy is the same it's kind of being shown like wow he's showing leadership qualities or he's showing um he's showing initiative or like I'm seeing white people, I've seen white men act, you know, problematic or loud or, or rambunctious. I mean, up until my adult working life, and seen it get like rewarded by the powers that be as well. You know, Joe's really um, a go getter, or Joe speaks his mind. You know, and I, and I would think, oh my god, if me or this big burly black guy here tried that we would just be slotted as problems. It would not be the same. And I think that starts very young. So, I mean, you you notice it. When, when I would be in, say, like, honors classes or things when I was younger, it would just be me, maybe one other guy. But even early, you saw there were a lot of, like, black girls in those classes. You know what I mean? More than um, they had each other. They were friends. Um... Antonio Moore, who's on YouTube, he discussed a similar thing about how um, you have like to a degree, to a degree, and you see in the stats like uh, black women are going to college more. They're going to um, they're doing better professionally than black men. I mean, and and the disparity starts like you know very young, and 
Yeah, yeah. By the time I was a senior in high school, a lot of my friends were already um, kicked out of school for a lot of bullshit. Uh, they were, some of them had already gotten arrested for things, you know, and it's, it's, it's different. It's this, it's what we were saying before about how systems, the system kind of treats both differently and they end up in a very different place and you have to take that into account. So what does this have to do with Shonda Rhimes? Like, I know a lot of women like Shonda Rhimes and I don't think she's a bad person and I think she has something great to say and I think she is somebody who is going to make a lot of waves in the system, but she's not that different than Ava DuVernay or Oprah or... um. Who else is there that is that kind of falls in this? Like Issa Rae is kind of like this. Which is somebody who I think, and this is something with girls in general, and it's the same thing with white girls and white boys even. Uh, girls are socialized better, and they know how to kind of get ahead in school better and do better because there's a big gap happening with. Uh, even white men falling behind white women. Like, uh, I feel like it's a different world and it's one that uh, girls are better socialized and acclimated to. And a big part of that is the stereotype of them uh, not making waves. But the ones that don't make the waves, especially if they're black, I think will be rewarded more. And yeah, so it's like, when I feel with the, the Oprah's, the Ava DuVernay's, the Shonda Rhimes's, they're not really going to cause a lot of ruckus. Like, like, what does Shonda Rhimes do? I mean, she just does a bunch of interracial smutty soap operas, really. You know, she's not really um, challenging or pushing anything forward as far as like, you know, the black image outside of representation, respectability and sexual assimilation, which is uh, something that Franz Fanon talks about a lot, about how the bourgeois class of black people, one of their big uh, concerns will always be sexual assimilation. For example, somebody um, said, described the season two of uh, dear white people, as the message being, dear white people, stop being racist with us. Stop being racist against us so we can have sex with you. Like, And I think it was, that was a good joke because I think that sentence kind of describes that um, integration class, that, that assimilation class perfectly. And I feel like Shonda Rhimes provides like the soundtrack to their lives or the the playlist the, the the video playlist to her lives with a lot of the stuff she does it's i mean it's just it's just it's just melodrama it's, it's a soap opera and i mean sitting with oprah like oprah really has a neoliberal type of um worldview a very representation first a very and people don't mind letting them in because they're always going to kind of let themselves be shown as a sign of progress and kind of always cheerlead the system as long as it's showing um, representation. Like the same thing happened with that um, black woman president of ABC. Um, she she's there when um, Roseanne gets fired, and Avril du Duvernay puts a big tweet. Yeah, this is a black woman taking out the trash, whatever. But you know, Avril Duvernay knows how the system works. She knows that um, she's able to do that because. The other powerful people at Disney and ABC and the investors and the shareholders agreed with it. And if they didn't agree with it and thought that there was still value to get out of Roseanne, she was going to have her hands tied and be forced to keep her. But not just that. She also greenlit Roseanne's show. And also she shut down several episodes of Blackish that were too political, too politically charged, too controversial, and too outspoken against uh, racism. So it's... It's kind of weird. Like, Sean, like Shonda Rhimes, I don't hate her, but I don't think she's going to rock the boat in any significant way. I think she... And this is not something that I think is um, isolated to uh, 
black women. I think there's a lot of black men. Like I think Kanye is part of this class of black men who are bargaining for access. And part of the bargain is to um, not rock the boat against racism and sometimes make excuses for it or help the system celebrate false progress, you know, like like Pharrell and his new Negro talk and all. that whole class of black guys that I call like uh, Basquiat rappers, like they um they all they all do that. So, but I mean, yeah, I that's my feeling about um Shonda Rhimes. I wish her the best, and I have no problem personally with her. I mean, because at least she didn't say really fucked up things about black people, which I which I appreciate, you know. So she doesn't really, I think, say anything that's really important to help them, but she doesn't, uh, you know, sy- systemically or collectively, but she doesn't um, shit on them. She's just somebody who's striving to get in the higher classes, and it's working for her, and she's a hard worker, and I, she's working the system. She's gaming it. Um, let's see. We're already at 50 minutes. I wonder if I should just stop here. The Black Panther stuff seems really weird because it seems to imply that every black child who sees it will by default be inspired by it. They just have to see this movie, return to their lives, and now that they've been rightly inspired, it is up to them whether or not they're successful or happy. I mean, I agree, but I, what I really think is I think these grown black folks, like these blavity blacks, many of whom grew up as tokens wherever they were, I think a lot of the stuff that they say is happening to the kids is really happening to them. I, I think really they're just the, they're the ones who are really getting inspired by this grown man in tights jumping around. And they kind of know to a degree it's silly to say that. So they pretend that they're doing it for the kids. And they're kind of projecting that on the kids. But I think these kids, especially these black kids who are from black spaces and don't have these the same type of identity crisis that they do. I mean, I don't think they're as in this same existential, constant existential angst and crisis of self-worth that um, these like blue check, blavity, buzzfeed, blacks are in you know i mean i think this is a lie they've told so well that i think they probably even convinced themselves in some degree i think they really convinced themselves that this is why they're doing it but i really don't think that's that's what it is um yeah so what else let's do one more somebody asked an interesting question they said to what extent do you think the idea of black women's superiority to black men is rooted in an idea that black women can become white while black men can't? I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but it really seems like people believe that. In French colonies, children of white fathers and black mothers were free, but of course not vice versa. And of course, as you've observed, there seems to be a greater cultural acceptance of black women with white men than vice versa. Honestly, I don't know if I've I've observed that. Um, I think black women, particularly this certain type of shea butter feminist, I think they accept black women with white men more than vice versa. I'm not sure if society at large accepts it more. Um, I mean, it's an interesting question. I have to think about it, but I just want to make sure, make clear that I actually never, I don't believe said that. I also began thinking about this when the old article, after reading the old article, After Welfare by Catherine Boo. She mentions one of the under-discussed purposes of welfare reform and Clintonian neoliberalism to force black single mothers to balance career and family so that they would be more like white-collar white women. In short, to what extent do you think modern American racial politics are driven by the idea that you can turn black women white, but not black men. And that's an interesting question, um, because I do think, I, I think to a degree, it's known that you can't turn black women white 
any more than you can turn black men white. But I do think there is this idea that you can make them um, an acceptable substitute. They'll never be white women, but they can be... And this is a project that I think has been done with uh, Asian women in decades past, you know, to, ch- to kind of make them acceptable substitutes to um, white women. And I also think a lot of um, Asian women, um, feminist writers and filmmakers and authors kind of bought into this project too and did a similar thing of throwing Asian men under the bus and and buy into this idea of... Um, being with white men as a way of kind of campaigning to show themselves as acceptable or superior substitutes to uh, white women. I think, um, I think we're seeing that now. I think there's a lot of motivation by some of the swirling crowd or Shea Butter crowd. And uh, hey, I keep, I keep staying on this topic, but the questions are what they are. Um, I think a lot of it is motivated by this idea of um, we can be better mates for you than uh, white women. I I feel like with a lot of these swirling and shea butter types, that's kind of uh, what's going on. And you kind of see it in, you kind of see it in that Issa Rae piece about the Asian men. She's doing it with Asian men, but I think what she's doing is not, that different than what a lot of um, this swirling crowd is trying to do with uh, white men. And I think that's why a lot of these Shea Butter feminists, they're always trying to get white women privileges or fight alongside white women or be accepted in feminism. You know, I, I saw I saw one of them say online that, you know, hey, black women invented feminism. We, we, invent, we invented it. And, you know, they want what the white woman has, but they're always bashing her. And they're bashing her because I think a lot of them see her as competition for the white man. And so what, so what happens is they, they will hate a lot of white women and call them out all the time and say all this stuff about them, but... They're not doing it on behalf of black people because a lot of times when those same white women have problems with black men, they'll take their side. So it's not doing it. So they're not doing it out of any particular love for black people as a collective. They're doing it for themselves as and I won't even say as black women because they don't like other black women who don't think like them. Like I said before, if you're a black woman who's not down with their particular band of politics, they will be as anti-black women as you can imagine and be vicious about it. So they want kind of a lot of the perks and benefits and positions and organizations and networks that the white woman has, but they also want to kind of cast the white woman to the side because they want to market to white men that they're the um, superior, a better alternative, you know? And I think... Issa Rae just didn't have the guile to do it correctly, and she did the same. She did the same type of argument, aimed it at um, Asian men, and just kind of just stupidly just said what she was thinking. She was like that um, character that there was old Joe Montana character in Saturday Night Live who would every character was thinking something, and then they would say something different, and that was a joke. And Joe Montana's character was dumb, so everything that he thought he would just say out loud. And he uh, wasn't clever enough to use any guile. I felt like Issa Rae's chapter was that. And an interesting thing in Issa Rae's chapter that I found really interesting, what she was saying how, and I brought this up on the show before, she was like, hey, um, Asian men, you know, come get with us. Your women don't appreciate you. But uh, us black women, we will. And here's all the good things that we can bring to the table that make us similar, you know. And then... He said something very interesting. I thought it was very telling, and it was very interesting. She said, uh, and, and uh, Asian and black women, you know, get with all these Asian guys, but not the Filipinos. They're the blacks of Asians. And joke or not, it's a very telling joke because, like I've said, 
if Filipinos are invalidated because they're supposedly the blacks of Asians, whatever that means, it's a figurative thing. It's not literal. A black woman is literally the blacks of women, like like literally, not not even figuratively. Like, who are the black people of women? Black women. So, if being the black version of something is an automatically invalidating thing, then you as a black woman should be automatically invalidated from dating Asian men. So, by you saying that the blacks of Asians, which is something that's not even literally black, it's a figurative uh, thing, which I don't think even is even true, uh, is something that would invalidate you among even black women, then you've pretty much downgraded blackness as a whole. So you, the literal black woman, according to that argument, should be too low for these Asian men that you're you're campaigning for to get with. You know what I'm saying? But the fact that she didn't even see it as self-invalidating to say that about Filipino people as the blacks of Asians kind of shows what this question is asking. Even though this question might sound a little crazy, but it shows that in her mind, being a black woman, but specifically an educated black woman, because, you know, I'm sure a hood rat black woman is still considered, you know, as black as a black man to her. But to her, an educated black woman who is um, down to swirl and who is in these um, elite bourgeois circles doesn't count as black. Like, she's... So, in a way, this questioner is right in that there is this idea that educated black women of a certain socioeconomic uh, level and pedigree are closer to whiteness. I don't think they're literally able to become white, but they're closer to whiteness in a lot of these people's imagination than black men and because black men are also bashing the article and and even to the point that she's she's less black than the, than a filipino you see what i'm saying that she can um reject blackness even though she's technically a black woman um even more readily than an asian person can if the asian person is um filipino it's so I think to some degree they never probably explicitly articulated to themselves or others like that, but they've somehow bought into this idea of what this writer said that black women to a degree, if they can't become white, at least they can become close to white or an acceptable white alternative. And I think what Issa Rae was saying in that article is how a lot of these women want to campaign themselves to white men. So yeah, I think a lot of I think a lot of the establishment, the white establishment, is willing to nurture that idea, and that's where a lot of this um, these this white fetishization of black women recently, you know, especially like the politics. I've talked about it a lot, you know, uh, all these white people saying, "Black, thanks, black women, you save us, black women, black women, black women." It's kind of pandering. They they're kind of playing into that fantasy and. It's a fantasy that doesn't threaten white supremacy. So, so they're okay with it. It makes them feel less racist. They know that there's a certain type of black women who will totally fall for it, you know. The ones who won't fall for it, they have no time for, you know. And and also, those black women won't get elevated into these spokespeople of black people um, positions that the Easter Rays of the world will. So it's... I think you're. I think you're around to. I think you're around to something. Except the only thing I would say is they will never really become white. It's just uh, they'll become um, a white alternative or closer to white, kind of like what um, Asian women were kind of becoming, or what that project was for a while. Which you know I don't think is working so much anymore because now the um, white male Asian woman relationships become such a stereotype or a trope that Asian women don't really work as well as shields against accusations of racism for white men as they used to, you know? Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that's it. It's been like over an hour. I think that is more than enough. So thanks everyone. And 
we still have a lot more questions to get through. So I'm going to try to do more of these more often so I can finally get through this backlog. The only problem is every time I do one of these, it sparks a whole new wave of questions. Like for some reason, when I do these uh, Q&A episodes, it reminds people that I answer questions and they get excited and they ask a whole bunch. So it's a vicious cycle. But I mean, I love all of y'all. So that's that. It's worth it. Also, um, with this episode, we have gotten eight episodes out for the month of May because I want to be more consistent and regular. And being that one of the promises of this show was two episodes a week, which would make eight for the month of May. I did extra in the past week or so to bring it up to eight for the month of May so that I could say that I dropped the equivalent of two episodes a week and kind of build up some uh, goodwill with the audience again, that this would uh, become a show that comes out more regularly in the future. And furthermore, now that we've gotten our eight out for the month of May, and that has been done going forward, we will do two a week. And now we'll come out the same time every week. Tuesday and Friday. We've hired an engineer, and because of that, that will be possible. So um, it, it ended up eating up a lot of our budget because I wanted to make a little more money before we started um, paying for an engineer, but I think it was something very necessary. So if you do appreciate the regularity um, that has been happening and will be happening going forward i will tell you the best way to show it is to go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and spend the five dollars a month to become a premium member you'll not only get both weekly episodes but you get access to the huge backlog of back episodes so um yeah i highly recommend it i highly recommend doing it and it helps us do what we do so with that Everyone be good. Take care.